Hey everyone, here we go with another installment of the Primate Cast. Evolution. Communication. Cognition. Conservation. Behavior. Primatology. Primatology. Typically primates. Become the monkey. Thanks everyone for joining us on the Primate Cast. This is podcast number 58, and the release date is Sunday, April the 12th, 2020. Now we're bouncing around a little bit in time. This happens to be the first installment of the Primate Cast, uh, at least for now, recorded uh, during the global lockdown of COVID-19. And so the interview that we're going to give in a few moments here, uh, which was done with EcoHealth Alliance disease ecologist, Dr. Anne Lourdesois, was actually recorded on March the 2nd at the Primate Research Institute during a visit there. We'll talk about this in a moment uh, with my co-host, Dr. Cecile Sarabian, who I'll also bring back to the studio in a moment. Um, But the preview uh, with Cecile and I were recorded, was recorded on March the 23rd. And now here I am sitting in my own living room on April the 11th evening, um, our prefecture of Aichi just uh, declared a state of emergency uh, as of yesterday afternoon. And so we've joined the other seven prefectures that went on lockdown uh, a couple of days ago. Um, So things are looking a little bit different around here. Of course, around the world, they've been looking a little bit different for quite some time, over a month in many places. And everybody is just in a really uncertain time. So For all of you who are listening at this really strange time in our lives, um, thanks for tuning in, and I hope you're all managing well. So I guess one of the nice things for the Primate cast is that I'm going to try and pump out a few of our archived interviews, Um, this particular one being a bit newer, um, but it also gives me a chance to bring back something that hasn't turned up in the Primate cast for a while, Conservation Voices, with now Dr. Cecile Sarabian. Welcome back to the studio, Cecile. Nice to have you back. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, it's been a while since we've recorded one of these together. Yeah, since, uh, well, I guess the end of my PhD, at least. And yeah, no kidding. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons we went on hiatus, <laughs> wasn't it? To get you sorted out for your PhD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any excuse we can throw into the listeners here for why we Thank you. <laughs> disappeared. Well, priorities, of course. But now our priority is to get back. And yeah. so who's joining us in the podcast today? Dr. Anne Lodissois, who is a senior scientist at the EcoHealth Alliance in New York, where I think you have some connections. Yeah, right? that was that was fun when she first walked in and we, 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 we greeted each other and she had some greetings from some folks back there that I have never actually met, but I've communicated with via email a whole bunch because uh, uh, talking about Alexis, this is a shout out to you, Alexi. Hey, um, I've been for the last few years, uh, one of the editors on the journal EcoHealth, which is put out by that organization. And so that's a, a scientific publication that focuses on, you know, anything infectious disease or, or disease and ecology. So the ecology of health, part of this kind of growing one health movement where you would want to look at, you know, not just human health, but because it happens in a context, it's human health in the context of environmental health, uh, wildlife, livestock health, so all of these things that interact uh, to determine how healthy we are as, as people and as populations. And so the EcoHealth Alliance um, is is also stemming from that ideology where they've been through a huge project that they've got called Predict, uh, going around the world trying to target you know new areas, new animals to study, new human populations, basically try, trying to hunt uh, new viruses. 
and genotype them and try and figure out what kinds of things are out there that might end up causing us problems uh, in the future. And so now this COVID-19 is an example of that. You know, it's not something that we would have predicted specifically, but it's been known for a really long time already that viruses like that are bound to emerge. And they do so on small scales all the time. Very rarely these kind of huge scales as we're witnessing right now. Yeah, so very relevant interview um, at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And so why did uh, why was Anne here? Maybe you could explain what the connection is between her and you. Yeah, so we met um, at the 27th International Primatological Society Congress in Nairobi, so a few years ago, um, in 2018. And we were actually part of the same um, football team. This was <laughs> like a parallel uh, event that was organized. And um, we were the, part of the Great Apes team, which happened uh -huh. to won the, the cup. So ah, those Great Ape teams. <laughs> And so for, for those of you who are part of um, IPS, yeah, Steve Shapiro was the, the judge on our <laughs> final game uh, with his little shorts. And, <laughs> the treasurer of um, IPS. Yeah. <laughs> Handing out judgments. So that's, yeah, that's how we met. And then we, we kept in touch. And as we will talk about, is also um, the director and the co-author of this film Buddha in the Chimpanzee's Footsteps, um, talking about this newly discovered population of chimpanzees in Eastern DRC in the Ituri province. And as I took some months away after my PhD, after April yeah, 2019, mm. when I left PRI for a few months, I also went on to some kind of filming adventure and that's um, how we also kept in touch exchanging mm -hmm. um, ideas and uh, ways of um, making your first film <laughs> yeah and so you got in touch with her to invite her to this year's uh, international symposium of the primatology and wildlife science um, which is at one of our graduate programs here um, but unfortunately she obviously wasn't able to speak there because of this sudden pandemic of COVID-19. And it, obviously this interview wasn't planned, but it turns out to be a pretty good coincidence to be able to talk to someone who specializes in infectious disease in wildlife at a time when this pandemic is actually caused by our kind of inappropriate interactions with wildlife. Yeah, exactly. So and instead of um, participating in this conference, uh, gave an international seminar here at PRI where she talked um, about the monkeypox uh, virus, for example which is also quite quite relevant to mm -hmm. the current um, outbreak we are facing now. But she also came to uh, talk about her recent movie shot in Eastern DRC on the newly discovered uh, population of chimpanzees there in the Ituri province. Um, so we organized a special event for that with Concept Session. So Concept Session, which is um, the student and postdoc-led initiative on sharing information and discussing about conservation slash environmental slash animal welfare issues um, and inviting experts to talk about that. So Yeah, that's a pretty cool opportunity. So your idea is to share, uh, to screen documentaries and then have a panel discussion, often involving the people who are involved in making the movies. Yeah, so we're, we're expanding a bit on, on the format. So it's not only documentaries only now, but um, it started like that. And now we can organize like photo exhibitions, uh, organize discussions, with those experts and, and the public um, so or even participating in like Nerd Night or Pechacucha platforms mm -hmm. for those who know ch check out um, mm -hmm. those on Facebook and social media mm -hmm. so 
just basically trying to, to reach out on, on an issue with, with the public. Yeah. Mm, and so it's it's almost never before been so salient, the idea of how we need to be so concerned about how we're treating nature uh, than when we have these massive pandemics of things that originated in nature and through kind of inappropriate uh, interactions with it. So in the podcast, what is Anne going to be talking about here? So Anne will be mainly talking about her epidemiologist background and how she got into that field. Um, she will also talk about the monkeypox virus, which mm -hmm. she has expertise on. But she will also, I think, more broadly relate to um, the field of, of epidemiology and infectious disease and mm -hmm. how anthropogenic pressures uh, may also affect mm -hmm. uh, all that. Yeah, one thing I was really impressed with uh, and entertained by is, is kind of how diverse she, she's thinking about things. and. You know, so she might have started with a, an epidemiology, infectious disease, ecology background, um, but is also so passionate about people and, and, and especially in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where she works uh, frequently, uh, you know, just the community kind of level involvement and, and how hard these kinds of infectious diseases can be for communities and, and getting them to change behaviors and things, for example, um, was really was really striking the way she was talking about those kind of things. Yeah, she's one of those person very, you can feel as you will here, like yeah. very passionate about what, what she does and yeah, taking all her yeah, strength and energy to, to, to develop projects there and um, to also lead um, community-based conservation projects and etc. So she, and then, yeah, she, she perfectly knows also what, what she's talking about. So it's, it's very pleasant to, to listen to her and her ex expertise um, as an epidemiologist working in, not only in DRC, but mm -hmm. as you will hear, she has, she has worked also in, in various places and different species, whether it's wildlife or pathogens. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so let's get right into the interview then. Okay, so thanks so much for joining us on the Primate Cast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you. We're really excited about talking more. And first, I'll just apologize. Not that we have any control over global events, but we are sorry that we've invited you all this way and we didn't even get to have you at our symposium or <laughs> the leading graduate uh, program in primatology and wildlife science has invited you to give a talk there. Um, but some of the other things are still on, so we'll get into those a little bit uh, as we go on. So we're, we're here with Anne and with Cecile in the studio. And uh, let's have a good chat. Yeah. Okay. So if you could just start by um, giving us a bit of a background. So you came here and you, you gave a presentation the other day on monkeypox and its relation to things like bushmeats. And um, so that's something we'll talk about in this interview as well. But what were all of the things that led up to this? You said you lived in or you've been working in DR Congo for the last 15 years or something. So how does that happen? <laughs> Okay, so, well, yeah, I've always uh, been interested in uh, traveling and discovering new cultures and new places through probably zoology. So I really like animals and discovering them and being outside. <laughs> so I like hiking, you know, climbing, uh, kayaking. And I happened to start working in the Congo in 2004 and I was then doing a second master degree and I was trapping rats and studying their parasites, ectoparasites, in Kinshasa. Mm -hmm. So I got this opportunity with the University of Liège. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I started to, yeah, to collect rats and trap them in Kinshasa. And that's when I got interested also in plague, first of all, mm -hmm. bubonic plague, which is my main expertise. And then uh, more into the Congo, get interested in getting more and more into the bush. And that's also when I discovered it was still monkeypox. That was 2010. Hmm. So 
of all of the infectious organisms I've heard you talk about until now, I mean, we're talking about some pretty scary things. And so you start with bubonic plague. So what is that like for a master's student uh, to go into Kinshasa, first of all, and then running around catching a bunch of rats that you suspect are infected with, with plague? Or at that time, maybe you didn't know about it. Yeah, exactly. So, well, <laughs> first of all, uh, I, I had I backpacked uh, a year and a half before that. So I was like confident that I could travel safely. I didn't know yet what Kinshasa was like, mm. <laughs> for sure. I wouldn't make it my first destination uh, as, a, as a master's student. But because I had traveled uh, before, it was fine. I was also, you know, well mentored uh, over there. But uh, really, the, the, the feeling was uh, freedom. Like everything is so disorganized that it was actually <laughs> the, the best time, one of the best time. <laughs> and, you know, I was a poor, broken student uh, paying for my studies. So I would take those buses, those little, those mini buses in the town that they call Esprit de Mort. So, you know, death spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, but trapping at night and then going in the morning to get the rodents in their, their traps and then taking those buses, rushing to get a seat in and have those rats there. And you know, some of them were dead, so they were smelling. And that, that, was a, <laughs> that was a nice story. But I didn't know there was bubonic plague. Mm. Well, there was no bubonic plague in Kinshasa, but I didn't know just overall there was bubonic plague in the world. But then I learned that the most active focus was actually the Ituri region, in the Congo, and that's exactly where I went uh, during my PhD to check for that, and then that led me to the, also to the discovery afterward of the chimpanzees. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, plague is not. I guess now with with kind of global climate on infectious disease, people always revisit the the idea of historical um, infectious diseases that cause all kinds of problems in human populations, and of course, plague is one of them. Um, but what can you maybe say from your own work and then just more generally about what the current situation is then and, and, and what's actually happening? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's nice because it's a disease that has a, a major remaining question, which is why uh, it remains in endemic foci, why plague persists only there and it doesn't spread like epidemic waves like in the past. So that's the major question is, well, one of the reasons why it doesn't spread like waves is probably hygiene, you know, the less rodents and, and less uh, yeah, chaos in terms of um, yeah, hygiene in the streets for us. Uh, there are other theories, like there might also be um, an immune, um, a territorial immunity caused by other Yersinias that are co-immunogenic. So Yersinia is the name of the oh, organism. Oh, sorry, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Yersinia pestis is the name of the bacterium, and it's, yeah, it's a bacterium. But well, where it survives, there it's not very clear whether or not there is a seasonality. It's not that that obvious. While people in the field, they will say, "Oh, it's rainy." The beginning of the rainy season, for example, in the Congo, they will say, "Oh, that's the beginning of the the plague season." So they we cannot really show it in the data, but that's what they say. So there are several theories, but one that starts to prevail is that. Mm, Plague, which is not supposed to be producing spores or a resistant form, might survive still might survive in the ground, but under certain circumstances, which might be you know ecological niche or like the stoichiometric niche of the soil. Mm -hmm. Let's say like a lot of salt. That's one of the pa recent paper, for example. But and I'm convinced that yeah, it stays in it survives in the ground. I don't know how, 
But a good way to show, to, to suggest that is in different places, it disappeared for 30 to 50 years and it re-emerged exactly in the same hamlet, not even the same village, mm -hmm. the same hamlet. So it's something that can't move over 30 years. Mm -hmm. So that's the major question and, and we'd like to answer the question. So what are people kind of doing now for, because it's not something that you hear about globally very often anymore. Um, so are there, are there kind of ongoing eradication project, but projects or you know, who's kind of invested in this issue apart from people do, like yourself doing research and, and trying yeah. to figure it out ecologically? So there are few people doing ecological research. Uh, I will say zero in the Congo because that's, again, the, the area is a bit remote and not uh, very uh, advertisable. Mm. But um, the, many things are being done in labs to test this hypothesis. And one of them is also not only the plague itself, the bacterium, but in association with amoebas, soil, free soil amoebas. Mm. Um, and in terms of eradication, there is a big problem in Madagascar. So you have plague nearly every year and sometimes you have huge outbreaks like two years ago. And uh, there you have uh, rodent control campaigns, uh, dusting uh, of houses, and you have new, yeah, new, new things like that um, developing. I know the WHO is uh, very uh, active. They have a massive eradication or well, rodent control uh, campaign going on. Mm. So something else that, uh, and this is coming more to what you spoke about the other day here at the Primate Research Institute, but another, uh, I would say part of a group of organisms that has gotten a lot of attention um, because of the one that's already been eradicated, smallpox, is, is monkeypox. So pox viruses is another thing that you've also been um, stu studying um, quite intensively as well recently. So maybe you can, you can touch on that as well. Uh, yeah, so again, it's really at a, from the field point of view. Uh, I don't do uh, like lab uh, experiments sure. and things like that. But so uh, just, sh yeah, the smallpox has been eradicated or declared eradicated uh, the 8th May 1980 by WHO, which was the major victory. And that's why WHO is so famous or so respected. It really got that from notoriety from the eradication of the, the smallpox. But uh, during the eradication campaign of the smallpox, uh, there were a few cases of a smallpox-like disease that actually was compared to sequences that were, that were found in 1958 in captive monkeys, uh, but in Denmark. Wow. So it was compared to that and they realized it was monkeypox. So of course there was a whole discussion about okay we have we are on the process of eradication declaring the eradication of smallpox but you have this disease emerging this other disease emerging let's try to see in every country what's happening and actually in 10 between 70 and 80 they found out that uh, it was like around 60 cases they found out mostly in west africa and the congo but what happened then is that every year there was, there's been an increase in monkeypox cases in the Congo Basin and more specifically in the DR Congo. To the point that uh, like in the last decade you, had, you have had 15,000 cases. Oh wow. And I, 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 I always say it's interesting to, to compare it you know, to the size of countries you live in or you know. Uh, because if I think a territory big like France or like uh, half Japan will report smallpox-like disease cases every month, 
or in nearly every day in some region, I think we will have heard about it. Mm. And I think most of maybe the people who are listening to us haven't heard of this disease. And, uh, and it's a reality that, again, it's a neglected disease, not well funded. And it started to get uh, attention when it crossed the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So in 2003, the, there was an outbreak, imported the first ever imported human outbreak of monkeypox, and it was in the US. And so CDC invested a lot then in the field, and they are the one who really uh, make all the effort to develop a vaccine in collaboration with obviously pharmaceuticals companies. And this vaccine has been approved last year. So now there is a vaccine, but of course, by the time, you know, it's going to reach the whole the people, you know, in the Congo, uh, who's going to pay for it, who's going to fund for that? All these are, are still depending questions. Mm. And the second thing maybe that's also very important is like smallpox didn't have a zoonotic reservoir. So you have no renewable resource. So if you eradicate it in everybody, then uh, it sh- you should be able to actually get rid of it. But monkeypox has one or many reservoirs we don't know and um, yeah the the suspect uh, guilty reservoirs are uh, rodents squirrels uh, it's not very obvious yet but squirrels are good candidate candidates because they've been found positive but some of them have been found sick and for, you you should you can't be a good reservoir if you mm-hmm. fall sick the same for some rodent species so it's not very very obvious yet yeah. mm. So what is the kind of work that you do on the ground then to try and figure it, figure this out? So the f- at the beginning, it was, yes, looking for the reservoir. And actually, uh, I'm not doing it anymore because I'm, I'm moving on and uh, doing, uh, well, chimpanzee work. But my colleagues are, are pursuing that. And so they have a new project and the project is rescreen all the samples, even from other projects and even museum specimens and see if, if they see appear fox viruses mm-hmm. in those samples, see where they are from and uh, see if they can figure out if there is one or many reservoirs, if it's linked with genetic uh, parameters because they have like a yeah, bigger ground. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but on my side, I just finished a project uh, which was really aiming at um, helping the people, the health staff in the field, like small nurses in their field, remote field location to diagnose and to also improve the the reporting, the alerting, so that the outbreaks will be limited in numbers and and diagnostic will be also performed in time. So that's mostly what we did in the last two years with the team of Kisangani. I see. So can you maybe just explain a bit? So um, how similar are the outcomes of infection with monkeypox in people um, as something like smallpox historically? Uh, and, then, and then maybe some of the other, um, you know, the pox viruses that are out there. Yeah, so if, if you see a picture of smallpox and monkeypox, if, well, you can't distinguish them, really. If you see those pictures for the first time, you wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to distinguish them. So it's very, very scary when mm-hmm. you see that because it reminds yeah, stories from the 50s. Huh? I think it's one uh, on eight people, on 10 people who are still dying of smallpox in the 50s. So it's not that old. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so the, the symptoms, they are vesicles, like you have a, you have a rash. And one thing with, uh, with uh, monkeypox is like the rash appears at once. It's like one burst of rash and all the lesions, which are 
vesicle, pustle, and then macules, and then it becomes a crust. Uh, they all evolve at the same uh, rate. Uh, so it's really the same. Uh, that's a way to diagnose it compared to chickenpox, for example. Uh, in monkeypox, you might have also swollen lymph nodes in the neck, uh, which you wouldn't get in chickenpox either. So that's, and then maybe one bad collateral damage is that sometimes the lesions come on the eye and then you become blind. So that's what we see in the Congo, and it's not documented. It's now it's been documented by with all the work that the CDC and the UCLA uh, people have done. But uh, it's there are so many cases and so many variation in the clinic, clinic that clearly there is a immune uh, question behind the evolution of the disease, mm-hmm. and so maybe that's that's. That's how maybe to answer the question why monkeypox is emerging is probably because the people who were vaccinated against smallpox pre-80s had still a residual immunity against any orthopox virus. And that's exactly the principle of vaccination. It's like you use the immunogenic properties of the pox viruses to actually protect someone from another one. Mm. And so now the people, so the generation, let's say, yeah, they are 30, they are 40 years old and they are totally vulnerable. Uh, The kids born after 80, they are vulnerable to monkeypox. They have zero uh, immunity. And that's what we think that the disease started to percolate in younger people uh, because they were not immune. And the only way to, yeah, to stop, I will say this big epidemic is vaccination would be great. Mm Uh, but maybe more research also on, first of all, like, can you get reinfected if you have already had monkeypox once? Or are there other orthopox viruses circulating in the wildlife that make, make you immune? And so you have a baseline level of immunity against every orthopox virus and you're fine. Mm-hmm. All those questions we don't know. So mm-hmm. There is a lot of research still to be done, even if there is a vaccine mm-hmm. now. Yeah. But another line of research you've been been talking about is also how contact with uh, wildlife, say through markets and bushmeat trade, for example, can actually expose people to this as well. And I mean, that reminds us now in the current, uh, again, COVID-19 situation where, you know, wildlife markets seem to be a source of all kinds of nasty things that ends up percolating in our in our societies as well. So what's the status of that as well? Yeah, so... Uh, there is so we have we haven't traced any uh, monkeypox outbreak that started from a bushmeat market, but we have traced index cases that have consumed bushmeat from the village hunted by the father or the uncle or a neighbor, and that was obvious that they had eaten something that made them sick, and that was either a giant rat or a duiker or a squirrel. So we have this evidence. Now, mm, so monkeypox virus, orthopox viruses are DNA viruses. So they are more resistant than RNA viruses, uh, like the COVID-19. So we suspect that monkeypox might still remain or be more infectious, even for a longer period of time on a bushmeal mm. stall. Uh, than, 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 for example, a, yeah, a pangolin that would be infected with an RNA virus. Uh, but still, it's uh, yeah. It's it probably reminds the world that uh, 
it's good maybe to st to stop or refrain from eating uh, bush meat and and maybe without veterinary uh, also control yeah certificate and things like that yeah cool and i think you you mentioned in the talk you gave here at uh, the primate research institute that people do not show any sign of avoidance of um, their family members or people or there are people in the village showing the symptoms of the monkeypox and these vesicles did you observe any any form of avoidance so we would be the first one to try not to touch someone with monkeypox clearly uh, we try to avoid it uh, as much as we can but it's very even even the medical doctors well they, they will wear gloves but they don't seem as scared as we are like our perception of the disease maybe is different but for the villagers they they, they don't seem to to realize that it's really bad the only so they, they, the kids go well if it's a kid they go to school uh, they all go to church so they shake well you know they shake hands they dance together they eat in the same plate uh, it's the so yeah the, those are principle of transmission and how it might get transmitted it's not really either not known uh, or they don't really take uh, them into account in their behavior but when we speak with the people yeah they just don't know how it's transmitted or they don't believe it comes from animals or they don't believe it's transmitted so there is a lot of outreach and sensitization to be to be done yeah so having been in that country for the past 15 years you also told us that you have a clear commitment to the local people as well so what kind of things are you doing with the local communities when these pathogens are emerging so yeah well exactly that, that's all that's the problem it's when these kinds of things are emerging mm. so sometimes you get more easily funds because it becomes a serious issue like now for the COVID-19 but of course prevention well it's prevention so it should be done before right so but each time uh, we go to the field we do those this kind of sensitization first of all uh, we we have a gathering with all the nurses of the health zones you know the congo is divided into health zones and each health zone in health areas and every month uh, all the nurses responsible for each health area they meet in the the chief town of the health zone so they share the epidemiological events so we use that system to actually organize our workshop like in the same time so that we could also transmit all what we've been discussing uh, so that's one way to to reach very easily like 200,000 people because they go back and then they transmit to the villager and that's how we did it to to sensitize the people and we use the radio because in um, in some places so people usually don't the adults not a lot of people can read and write and you don't have network most of the time where we work so the only way they have local radios and we do we go and have do like here interviews and uh, also radio broadcast about what why you have a group of people in the village what they are doing they are they even say okay we are they are there they can speak with you if you have questions we try to remain open and accessible so that the people can come and discuss So talking about local people, you have recently shot a movie, Mbuda, in the chimpanzee's footsteps in the region with um, the journalist, photojournalist Caroline Thierion and local scientists as well as guides on this recently discovered community of chimpanzees in Ituri province. 
So can you tell us a bit more on what led you and these people to report on this? So it's very funny because indeed, so we, okay, I uh, found, let's say I found, but it's, it's not, I, I, I realized there was a population of chimpanzees in the, in the bubonic plague uh, area uh, uh, in the Ituri province. And it was only in 2015 that I realized that. But I was not working on plague anymore by then. I was working on river blindness and I was collecting flies in rivers. And it's because I had to collect flies in fa fast flowing rivers that I had to go along the escarpment of the Albert Lake where the rivers are flowing fast. <laughs> and that's when I saw a little fragment of forest And uh, I asked to my guide Oti that uh, you can see in the movie as well. So we are uh, talking about the movie Buddha and the chimpanzee's footsteps that was shot in 2017? Yes, correct. In Ituri province in yeah. DR Congo. Yeah. So in that movie, Buddha, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, there is a guy, he's called Oti, and he's been my, my guide and my friend and, and my logistician now for uh, seven years. And uh, because he also learned how to collect the flies and pupae in the, the rivers to help. And then uh, as we were going down the, the escarpment of the Lake Albert, we saw this forest fragment and I, uh, this is the first time I see a forest there because everything is deforested. So even the Mount Aboro, which is the highest peak there, uh, was still forested till 1985-87 and then all was gone in 92 around 92. So he said that in this forest there were various animals but also monkeys and he mentions that he mentions the chimpanzees. And I'm not at all a primatologist so I didn't know anything about the chimpanzees and home range and how they live uh, by then. And um, but I said so I did uh, the chimpanzee, so I said the, the name, I imitated the chimpanzee, said <laughs> yes, yes, and they come in the field sometimes. You know, I had a hard time believing because to me, uh, this was more maybe like one square kilometer forest, which is even less, we, we realized was even less. And so we did our work that day and on the way back, we heard the chimpanzees. Mm. And so that really triggered some kind of... Uh, well, I don't know, something else in my brain and in my, uh, my uh, adventure uh, life. <laughs> and I decided uh, that maybe it's a new species. Maybe it's a new subspecies, which makes it very exciting. And uh, I decided to document them. So I was uh, teaching at the University of Kisangani and the C4 was the, my uh, employer and they funded the first exploration in the area. And that's how we started to go back to Ituri more and more and, and find out that there were at least 35 chimpanzees living there. Yeah. So yeah. When, when you talk to people in the, in the chimpanzee community, I mean, is, are people surprised by that? that? This sounds really surprising to find this kind of almost a relic population, right? I mean, how close are they to a, a source population, for example? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So the closest is probably around uh, Lake Albert in Uganda. So from Murchison going east. And then if you cross Albert Lake to Uganda, Budongo, which would be 65, 70 kilometers. And on the but that's across the lake. So but that's across the lake. if you go over land... Ah, yeah, they cannot swim or they cannot paddle. No. Yeah. But uh, in land, it's about yeah, 60 kilometers as well. 
but uh, so it's a, it's a good it's an interesting question because I cannot say I have the clear, clear answer to that because there are like 18 such fragments and the bigger the bigger one is maybe is I don't have the number it's like around 13 square kilometer the bigger fragment that we haven't explored because of very major security issues mm -hmm. there uh, and this fragment is 40 kilometers from the edge of the I major see. forest and we know there are chimpanzees there people have told us so you have clearly a fragmented population along the albert lake scarp and we don't know how how well they they mix or if they they exchange individuals and yeah if they do well in the savanna and just added to that is like we work really on the scarp so in, where you are, have an altitude and in two kilometers, if you climb two kilometers, you go from 600 meter to 2000. So it's very, very steep. And the, the part in the, on top is called the Lendu Plateau. And then you start going toward the Aru Biringi landscape. And there, are, there is also a mixed savanna gallery and nobody knows there are chimpanzees there, but they are. And nobody is studying them either. Mm. So there is a lot still to discover. <laughs> So what was your main motivation for making this movie? The movie first, uh, the motivation, the major motivation for the movie was that nobody wanted to fund any like conservation project there or say a, yeah, a research project that would not be only exploratory because of the, the flag red zone. So because it's been like uh, considered like this since uh, 90, well, you know, you had a big ethnic war there. So between the end of the 90s till 2006, since then it's been like that, Ituri is a red zone. So nobody, well, not a lot of people are going. Some people, some researchers go. And, uh, but in those forests, nobody was going. So when I faced those, you know, people who were always saying, no, we can don't fund that or we wouldn't be able to send people. We cannot support you because if something happened, that would be our responsibility. I decided that I had to make a, make a movie to show the people it's possible to work there. And not only is it possible, but I work with the locals and I work with the Congolese um, master's students and PhD students, and we are doing a good job. So that's how it's the, the idea started. And of course, then when we real, when the people show, saw us coming and uh, we were approached by uh, the people from the University of the Blue Mountain, which is based in Pandromareti, and they had already drafted a conservation plan for the Blue Mountain. So they really need uh, more legal or official support and maybe international advertising to show the, the biodiversity rich area they live in and that's what I think we are doing for them now yeah. and supporting also some initiatives like I was um, so I try to when there are some um, ground call for proposals and if it's in French it's easy because they can dr drive them directly when it's in English it's a bit more complicated but then I ask them for example to draft them in French then I translate them for them and we try to get some small grants. We cannot get, have like a huge grant, but we don't need a huge grant. What we want to do doesn't cost a lot, but you need basic funding uh, to start it. So it's not, uh, once it's started, I think it can be sustainable. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, apart from the, uh, the motivation you just explained about 
the need for a movie like that to bring attention to this area. Uh, just as yourself with your kind of background, how did that, was it something that you just thought, we just need to make a movie? Or what was the experience that led to even having the concept that a movie would be something you could make about this? Um, so clearly that was the motivation because I didn't see any, I don't, I didn't do like, uh, you know, social media, Instagram, all that. I don't, I don't do that. You know, I'm old school. <laughs> no, I started to, to, to go, but anyway, so, uh, yeah, that was the first, uh, that, it was the most obvious thing I could do. I have a friend, she's a photojournalist. She has made, uh, like two corporate movies. I'm pretty sure she loves Congo. She produced the only guidebook about Congo, oh. touristic guidebook. So she will be the perfect person. So I went back in February 2017 saying, we need to make a movie. Yes, you're coming. Yes. So it was a movie <laughs> between friends to start with. Mm -hmm. We had no funding. So I even like had no job then. And I invested uh, some money to buy the, the gear and to mm -hmm. shoot the movie. And we were there as friends and then we needed to edit the movie, but had no money. So we waited an, a year and then did a crowdfunding, got the money and then managed to and got a producer also and managed to finish Great. the movie. So it's not like a process like, oh, yeah, we just, we made a movie, you know, it's sure. like, like, no, <laughs> it, it was a whole process. Uh, but the idea itself, yes, came from the fact that, yeah, I guess it's the only way to take the voice of the people over and, and uh, show that uh, it's possible to work there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing because I, I just don't think that your average person will be like, yeah, let's just make a movie. Obviously, the amount of production you need, even on a small budget or small scale, it's, it's you know, people who have a lot of background in filmmaking mm. um, can still struggle with that. So I, I just think that's so impressive <laughs> to go and, and do this. Well, it's Mark Twain. He said uh, uh, they didn't know it was impossible, so they did it. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Good attitude. <laughs> exactly. So what's next? I heard you just got the National Geographic grant to continue that endeavor. So, see, I don't know if the movie uh, helped but uh, the movie is done and now I've, I've, I actually got a National Geographic grant to keep working there, like um, refining the densities of chimpanzee, like the figures that we found, also try to document if they have more cultural or traditional behavior that would be local, if there are any altitude adaptation to this population, but also to have us I, I want to develop a citizen science component since we cannot be there all the time, since people are living there all the time. Uh, with Tony Romani, who works with the Faculty of Artes Liberales in uh, Poland, he helped to develop a cyber, track cyber tracker app, uh, you mm -hmm. know, the, the interface for the site. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, we will give it to 20 people there so that they can contribute to primate sightings. We, we, have, we will start with primate sightings. So it's even also a way to imply, you know, imply them in the research, mm -hmm. involve them in the research. And yeah, they, 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 they were already super happy when they, they will see like the camera trap results. Mm -hmm. But there it's going to be one step more. So that's one thing. And uh, I was... Um, I realized that, as you were saying, education in any, any topic is a very, very important thing to do. Sensitization is one. And we did, I think, a very good job with Oti and Pastor Jérôme, who is also in the movie, who is our preacher. And he preaches the, you know, the good news of the environment. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's true. And he's really good at, at, you know, passing messages because he's also a real pastor in life. Mm -hmm. So it was very good to, to let the people know, explain what we were doing, who we were, how we were going to work. 
So um, one of the components of the National Geographic project uh, that uh, I really want to do is uh, work with kids because the education component is really important and they are always kind of left behind in a sense that, yeah, they, they go to school, but, you know, the schools in the, in the village are not the best, uh, I would say, <laughs> that the education is not the way we would probably adapt it to modern way of teaching. And they are not at all like involved in practicals. Mm. So when also we realized that kids were very interested when we were present in the village, when you will show the camera trap results, when we will wash the seed, the, the, the feces and see the seeds uh, of the monkeys, we decided that we should Im involve them in the, the, the project. And one way of doing it is to actually collect, we, they won't go in the forest, we will collect uh, the feces of different animals, associate them with the animals with pictures, and then they will be able to choose, it's a game, right? They, they will be able to choose which animal they want uh, the, the feces uh, of, and we, they're gonna know, but they're gonna not wash them because we don't, we also want to prevent disease. So we will wash them for them in front of them. And then so that they see that we take out those seeds of the, these, um, these feces, we let them dry and then they will be able to yeah, plant them themselves and see them growing. And it's like a way to, to really see the, the process of forest regeneration, seed dispersal, and also for them to go and plant them when, wherever they want to do it. Of course, they cannot put them in the crop field of the parents, but they will they will be guided to towards a corridor that we think should be re reconstructed so that chimpanzees and other primates can can actually move between fragments. Yeah, this is an incredible resource of uh, education, I guess. Oh yeah, Cecile would know. Yeah, sure. So maybe to, to wrap up and maybe go back to your disease biologist uh, background and, and this newly discovered community of chimpanzee, do you, do you think that um, yeah, monkeypox could be present in, uh, in the chimpanzees that, um, that are present in Italy province? So I will say they are, well, they have already plague. I mean, plague is already in the area. Let's, let's prevent them from getting monkeypox. So monkeypox is more uh, like a disease of lowland uh, tropical uh, rainforests. So there hasn't been any cases documented in altitude. So whether uh, also the disconnection with the major main main forest, the main source, is will act in their favor is also probably true. I think because in a pulu in in the in the Okapifona reserve, which is the closest major continuous lowland to mid-height rainforest, uh, there is monkeypox. So this whole forest goes down to Bawele, where it's the hot spot. So I guess it protects them from, from monkeypox, the fact that they are fragment in, living in fragmented landscape. There was one single case of a kid in Kivu, which is surprising, but they didn't trace the, the origin of the disease. So it mm. might be that Either it's um, imported bushmeat or it traveled, I can't, but they didn't, they never thought it was local uh, infection. And so, but you mentioned bubonic plague as well. So this is something that maybe you'll be following up on as well in the future. I'd love to, uh, at, well, so I've, so there is an outbreak currently for the moment, there is a human outbreak and uh, we have submitted a project to work on human plague. And maybe it will be interesting to see what if chimpanzee maybe, uh, 
well infected and if yeah if they react towards let's say dead rodents because when you have plague outbreak you have epizootics and uh, yeah if you have a lot of rodents dying what would happen if chimpanzees are around so a lot of questions and um, you know I'm, I like ectoparasites I know you guys you like rather endoparasites right <laughs> but I like the ecto one and I, I was surprised not to see a lot of research being done on wild uh, pop- population and mm-hmm. the, the, the ticks for example uh, but of course it will be difficult to collect them because you will need to catch them exactly but it will be interesting to f- think about a way to how to recollect ectoparasites from uh, wild uh, monkeys mm-hmm. I don't know how huh? but uh, like rubbing with uh, some <laughs> kind of non-toxic uh, dust yeah, we've worked a little bit. I mean, there, there's some studies of uh, not I'm not sure about great apes, but certainly with smaller, smaller primates uh, in Madagascar. There's some cool studies mm-hmm. of of, of uh, ectoparasites on mouse okay. lemurs, for example, I um, some clever up, studies. Yeah. yeah, but they're more about based on capture. So, yeah. you know, with with mm-hmm. great apes, you do have various teams that have been knocking down animals for various purposes, like health monitoring, vaccinating, whatever. Um, so at that time, it might be possible. But yeah, it's I usually think... to be avoided. I yeah. think, yeah. Yeah, but if it happens, like as you said, in that kind of circumstance, I think it would be great if it, there was a systematic, uh, you know, exam. Mm-hmm. Of, sure. uh, yeah, I think that would be co- something I would be very interested in looking at. Sure. Yeah. So, just on that, like maybe to finish up here, um, you mentioned that you're with Eagle Health Alliance. And so um, you've been with them for, I guess, over a year. But so what are the, maybe you can just ex- talk briefly about your time with Eagle Health Alliance and their, you know, what their objectives are. Yeah, and actually maybe I should because they are also, let's say, at the heart of the uh, communication about the coronavirus mm-hmm. 19 outbreak. So, and actually the work that I, so I work there now three, it's nearly three years I've been working there. And I, I was hired on a huge USAID project, which was called PREDICT. And the objective of PREDICT was to discover new uh, zoonotic virus. Uh, especially in, yeah, let's say in um, taxa that were considered uh, major targets like sold on bushmeat markets, for example. But not only like in Africa, it was in Asia and South America. So 10 years. Um, and in 10 years, the project just closed and predict discover 981 new wow. viruses. So we don't know whether or not they are human pathogenic, a pathogenic, whatever pathogenic. They are circulating, they are there. Of course, when I say new viruses, many of them is like viral sequences detected in rodents or bats or prime, non-human primates, but also in humans, because there was also a syndromic component um, in the project. So people in hospital mm-hmm. and in communities were also sampled. and. Uh, the concept was quite interesting, and I think it's something to remember, because um, we were we were trapping the the animals and at the same time doing all the sampling with people within a time frame of 21 days, so that if there was an emergence in in the the animal population, you might catch it in a human seeking you know care mm-hmm. in the nearest uh, hospital or clinics. So it was very well thought, I think. Uh, yet. Uh, I may be wrong, but I don't think that they had found uh, the mm. COVID-19. 
Uh, however, many coronaviruses have been found mm -hmm. during this project. So we know a lot of coronaviruses are circulating in wildlife, but they are so far not pathogenic mm -hmm. to human. Yeah, it seems like the virus hunting is is really prominent these days, and just the, the diversity out there is pretty astounding. Um, and I guess just picking, you know, picking how is it possible to pick out of all of that, you know, huge database now of things that are out there, right. like what might eventually cause a problem. So yeah, it's difficult, and I think again, you know, it's like there are diseases that get more publicity than uh, than others. Uh, Ebola is one of them. So f we forget that there is still an ongoing Ebola mm -hmm. outbreak in the Congo mm -hmm. right now. Uh, but the project, Predict Project, has discovered a new strain of, of uh, Ebola uh, during the last uh, 10 years. It's Bombali. Actually, mm -hmm. it was uh, described last, published last year, but found already a few years ago. So it was uh, released for publication last year. <laughs> and so it's interesting because it's Ebola, then, of course, more tests were performed to be able to say whether or not it might be or not a human pathogenic. Mm -hmm. But there are viruses that we have so far maybe considered too mild <laughs> that somehow are not that mild when, when like they maybe mutate in a way that we mm -hmm. didn't expect. And that's difficult, I think, to, to really predict. <laughs> that's funny because it's called predict. But uh, it's the, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. So they are men, and uh, well, people are busy now seeing the closest relative to the, this new coronavirus, uh, which one is the closest pathogenic, and what's the genetic differences. So, so, but for to do that, you need money. So of course, in those circumstances, the current circumstances, there is the money to understand quickly how it evolved and how it may still evolve. But usually, you discover nine hundred viruses. Nobody has the money to do all the, you know, the sequencing of the whole genome of all those viruses and then do all the bioinformatics. You know, it's 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 understandable. So there are priorities. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, it's uh, I don't know what was the probability of this one emerging. <laughs> I'm not a statistician. <laughs> Great. Yeah, perfect. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks You're for welcome. sharing your Thank experience. You for me. Before you go, though, can you just so if people are interested in learning more about Eco Health Alliance, you can find it Eco Health Alliance if you Google it. But also maybe you can just tell people how they can learn more about the Mbuda project and. Yeah, thank you for reminding me that. So yes, they can find out EcoHealth Alliance website. And also from Buddha, we only have created now a Facebook, uh, which is called Buddha Film. Uh, so we post the news of the movie where we show it and uh, a bit of the news. We haven't yet created like a page for the site, but it's uh, the next steps as I'm going to meet everybody from the the Ituri next week, if all goes well. <laughs> okay, well, and Lourdesois, thank you very much for joining us on the Primate Cast. Wish you all the best of luck in your future endeavors. And thank hope you to talk much. to you again. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to all things primatology and wildlife science, to the conservation of species, and to the dissemination of related scientific knowledge. The podcast is brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Study in Primatology at the Kyoto University Primate Research Institute.
visit us online at theparamicast.com and follow our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter at the Paramicast. Conservation Voices is an offshoot of the Paramicast, hosted and produced by Dr. Cecil Sarabian. <laughs>